Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 38 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I sat down with Margaret Wishingrad, the co-founder and CEO of Three Wishes Cereal. Recently winning the Best Clean Label Award by Nexty this year, Three Wishes Cereal is a high-protein, low-sugar, grain-free breakfast cereal that tastes just like the cereals from your childhood. Founded three years ago by Margaret and her husband, Ian, Three Wishes is completely free of wheat, dairy, soy, oats, corn, rice, and peanuts, and has 70% less sugar, eight times more protein, and better-for-you ingredients such as chickpeas, pea protein, and monk fruit. In this episode, Margaret shares with us her journey from growing up in Brooklyn to working in real estate to joining her husband's advertising agency, where they helped brands like Pepsi and AT&T, as well as early stage companies, launch new products. She talks with us about how she came up with the name and concept for Three Wishes, how she spent two years on product development, and why it was important for them to have early conversations with retailers. Tune in to hear all this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Margaret, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and building Three Wishes Cereal. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. So where are you from originally? Let's talk about your childhood. Where are you from? What did your parents do? Did you have siblings? So I was actually born in Israel. I came to the United States when I was about three years old, moved to cool immigrant Brooklyn, which is now slowly becoming gentrified. So everyone hears Brooklyn. I'm like, nope, not the cool part of Brooklyn, immigrant Brooklyn. And um, then I grew up, decided to live in Manhattan for a long time, lived there with my now husband, Ian, and we just moved to the Burbs. So we've hopped all over, but New York has really been my playground for a long time. And what did your parents do growing up? So my mom still has the same job 20 years later, which for an entrepreneur is the most mind-blowing thing. Um, and so she works in the clinical side of a hospital. And my dad's an entrepreneur as well, um, and he has an importing business. So it's an interesting family dynamic. So growing up, did you want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, I have always, I have a family of entrepreneurs. My uncle's an entrepreneur, my grandfather, um, my dad has always had his own business. And so I think that's something I've always loved. Fun fact, I've literally only dated entrepreneurs. (laughs) The weirdest thing, like some dating profiles are like, you know, need somebody that likes skiing. Nope. Entrepreneurs. <laughs> well, they say women, I guess it's probably goes for men too, that like you try to date someone like women will try to find someone like their dad. Yeah. Men will try to find someone like their mom. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So entrepreneurs it was. All right. And so, you know, did you have siblings? Yeah. So I actually, we have such a fun widespread. So my, my younger sister is 23 and then my brother is 14. So are you in the middle or where are you? I'm the oldest. Oh, you're the oldest. Yeah. 
So, right. we, so we all have a fun spread. My sister and I are seven years apart. And my brother and I are 16 years apart. Wow. That's a big difference. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so you grew up kind of in New York and you, did you play any sports when you were a kid or you always yes. knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur? So did you like start a lemonade stand or? Yeah, you- no, I mean, I think what's really interesting about being an immigrant, it's really just like survive and you come to this country with, you know, no real anything. So my parents worked random odd jobs to get to where they were. Um, and so for me, it's not like I was a lone wolf, but it was just like, Hey, make it out there, go to school, whatever schools in the neighborhood. It's, it's interesting because now having my own children, it's like, Oh, how do we find the best school district and give them an advantage and put them into sports. But for me, it was like, there were no rules. It was, you just go to school, you do well, you get a job and become an adult. And so you kind of just fi- find your own way and, and build your own path. And so for me, it was, I was kind of always my own, my own thing. And so you know, when you were kind of paving your own path, what were some of those things that you did? Like when you look back and you knew when you were a kid that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, what were some of those things or early signs? Uh, maybe you were doing, you know, like, like I said, the lemonade stand, or were you being creative around solving problems or, you know, what kind of things were you into? Yeah. So I think it's, it's, I never, I don't know if I necessarily knew as a kid, like, you know, one day I want to grow up and be an entrepreneur. It was really just, I love to work. And so, you know, a lot of people love to focus on school and learning there. And for me, it was, Hey dad, how can I help you be a part of your business? And, you know, at age 13, how do I create your ad campaign for your business then? And things that like normal kids that age probably don't do, but for me, it was so interesting. So I always really liked to work, whether it was um, with my dad or for someone else, the experience was something I always was super hungry to, to learn. And some people, my dad always likes to say, some people work with their brain and some work with their hands. Um, so for me, it wasn't school. It was really getting in the workforce and understanding how to navigate within a company, what culture looks like, um, and how to just build product and build businesses has been just like a real interest for me. That's really interesting. Some people like to work with their brain versus their hands. I feel like I think most entrepreneurs are probably the ones that like to work with their hands and get, you know, in the trenches a little bit and learn through experience. Um, so when you, so tell me about like high school and you went off to college, I assume, where did you go and why? So I went to Hunter College in um, in Manhattan, in New York. And so for me, it was like, again, back to that immigrant thing. It wasn't, okay, you know, you have to like do this and go to Harvard. It was, oh, you know, a really cost-effective option is your like, you know, City University of New York, Hunter College option. Um, it was close to home because the option of going away to school is so foreign for my parents. And so it was just kind of like, stay close, go to a good school nearby and get a degree. And for my, you know, they were like, oh, become a doctor or accountant or a lawyer. And none of that ever interested me. So I would just take classes to kind of appease my parents. Um, but I knew that there was something out there bigger than just those jobs. So I did school to do school, but I can't say it was like, oh, I couldn't wait to learn another year of macroeconomics. Yeah. What did you end up studying? Business? Uh, sociology. Which okay. Is completely unrelated to any of those, but I did take a ton of business classes that now I look back at and make a ton of sense to me. And so, what made you choose um, social sociology? It was the quickest way to just finish school and get out. Okay. 
It was kind of like, what's, what's the path of least resistance where I could just, I, I worked my entire way through college. So I had a full-time job. Um, and so for me, I would take whatever classes were available after work. Um, and so it was just kind of like, how do I do my schedule so I can work nine to five, get paid, live in my Manhattan apartment and, um, just like figure out my, my next steps. Where were you working? I was working at Brown Harris Stevens, which is a big real estate company. Um, and I was on the property management side and then I transitioned to actually one day being on the real estate side and then realizing that, yes, as fun as it is to kind of build your own thing and, and work for, um, yourself in that sense of just being like a real estate agent. But for me, it was, I couldn't sell someone else's product. It needed to be mine. Um, so that's kind of like the, the beginning of realizing I wanted to do something on my own, but really, truly mine. And when did you realize that? Was there like a specific moment where you came to that aha kind of, hmm, I need to actually do it myself for me to get truly rallied behind it? Yeah. So I, you know, I met Ian kind of at the same time that I was um, starting to work in real estate. And I slowly kind of just like watched him build his company um, and was so interested by it. So I just like, I was like, oh, let me help you out like a day or two a week. And like, you could use some help and um, kind of just started working with him. And then so quickly it became our company. And I was speaking up in those meetings and contributing and creating campaigns alongside Ian and really helping grow with the clients we were with and then getting new clients and um, realized I actually loved marketing and I loved creating product. And then naturally, as we help build brands for other people, I think we're always interested in how do I build that thing for myself, but it really takes an idea. And I think the biggest thing is a ton of people have like, Oh, let me just do this as a business. Um, but for me, it was really, how do I identify a big problem that needs a real solution that is a scalable business versus like, Hey, let's open an Etsy shop. Um, it was really identifying that. And that only happened when we became parents. And so Ian's your husband, I assume. Yeah. And Ian is also your co-founder at Three Wishes Series. Correct. Um, and so before kind of collaborating with him and creating this agency, um, what were some of the things that you learned from the real estate business that has helped you as an entrepreneur and building your business? Yeah, I mean, in New York, it's kind of funny now that like I, I draw the parallels, but New York has, I don't know, the, like some crazy numbers, like 10,000 real estate agents. Cause there's just mm-hmm. like, a dense city. And so it's really sharky. Right. And it's the grocery yeah. store has thousands and thousands of items. Right. And so how do you make your stand out? Why are you special? And so you learn all of these things as you try to figure it out and, and kind of grow in both real estate and I guess in grocery as well. Interesting. So you kind of, because there are so many real estate agents and there are, I even got my license in New York city cause I was bored. So I feel like everybody, I feel like everyone I know has it. It's like, yeah, like I'm bored. What should I do? Real estate sounds fun. I like houses. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it was needs so a house. Fun. The nosy part of me was like, I love to see every apartment in New York city. Like how fun. Yeah. yeah. How are people living? Yeah. Cause New York, you know, in LA here, I'm, I'm in LA, you know, you kind of, everybody has their car and they kind of try to show off by their cars. You know, oh, in New York, everyone's just walking on the street and you have no clue if they're going back to some massive apartment or some tiny shoebox. Yeah. And so it's, it's definitely like a little curiosity there of like how people actually are living because no one really back when I was there like no one I'm sure it's different now with COVID but no one would go over each other's houses like you never really went to a house party because there's so much to do right Right. yeah and you're never home you're just like you sleep there and then that's it like it's a it's a hotel room which is why it's sized like a hotel room but that's exactly it you don't apartment hop you go out and you enjoy the city 
Right, right. Always out and about. So that's interesting that you kind of learned how to stand out, I guess, from the real estate world and brought that piece into your business. Um, and so, and what about the advertising agency? What were some of the key things you learned there and, and that business that helped you? Yeah, I mean, so much, so much. Um, you know, we really covered all parts of the brands that we worked with, whether it was creating the campaign for them or what the packaging looked like, or, you know, how do I identify the demographic you're really speaking to and what resonates with them and what are those key performance things that really matter to the brand. Um, and so it was, you know, it was everything A to Z of understanding the brand, the consumer, how to mesh those two together. Um, and I think that really gave us an advantage coming out of the gate as well. And so what were some of the clients that you guys worked with at your um, advertising agency? What were some yeah, so you did? We, we worked with the AT&T, Nestle, Diageo, Pepsis of the world, but the real joy, and those are lovely and they're great and provide a wonderful life, but the real joy was actually um, clients that would come to us with an idea. And so one of our clients is a pet toy. And so they came with this wonderful technology um, and really had some interesting just dis disruptive things for that category. And that was so interesting. We got to name it, to create the packaging, to create the strategy, the all of the digital media and all of these little things that really truly made it a business. Um, and I think that seeing the underbelly of that beast was really what made us feel prepared to do our own thing as well. Interesting. Do you think if you didn't have that experience that it would have been challenging to kind of try to create a brand? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's so different um, working on massive brands that have awareness, you know, mm -hmm. all of Pepsi, Diageo, they're all brands with ridiculous budgets and, and a long, long time of brand development. Um, they're iconic. And so it's super easy to be like, oh, you know, how do we create a cool new skew or flavor or campaign for these things that are well known? Mm -hmm. But when you take something that has nothing behind it, besides just a good idea, um, it's a real challenge. And I think that challenge really, really taught us a lot. So walk us through kind of the whole concept and how you really came up with the idea for Three Wishes Cereal. Yes. Yeah, so um, when Ian and I had Ellis, or now firstborn, um, I became one of those moms that was like totally paranoid about every little ingredient I'd give my kid, made my own baby food. Um, and it was really funny because I thought I was like going to be the coolest chill mom. And I was totally paranoid and freaked out about every little burp and, and belch. And it was great. So once we had Ellis, um, started to feed him foods and as you look into these recommendations on, hey, what do you start to introduce your kid and feed them, especially when they're developing little pincer skills and all these things, one of the records was cereal. And it was just like, you know, Cheerios. And for me, I was just mind blown because we see Bonza come in and innovate in pasta, Siete come and do um, tortilla chips and, and all these other things. And for me, I couldn't believe that cereal was one of these categories. And granted, this is now probably three years ago. Um, one of these categories that had no innovation, it was still literally every cereal I had as a kid, which is crazy. Um, and as you continue to look at that aisle, they continue to get sweeter. You have limited edition Sour Patch Kids cereal or Twinkie cereal. And it's so interesting knowing where all of the trends are going with clean eating to see that nothing caught up to that. And then if you dive, and that's just conventional grocery, right? And then you go into healthy stores, you go into Whole Foods and you look and that aisle is still a ton of grains and still a ton of sugar. Granted, a little less sugar and advertised whole grains, 
but there was no real true innovation there. Um, and that was for me, a massive, just like a light bulb for both myself, my family, and I think just everyone else. And so before I got ahead of my skis, I started to talk to a ton of other moms, parents, grandparents, you name it. And I was kind of like, Hey, do you still eat cereal? And if not, why? Um, and it was three different things that were super, you know, important, which was still a ton of sugar. How are you feeding, you know, yourself or your kid dessert? Um, there's no protein, which is crazy because the whole thing around breakfast is like eat eggs, eat proteins, the beginning of the day. Um, and cereal has no protein just because of the way the ingredient, like what it's made of. And then, um, I think, you know, for me, it's something really important, but grain and gluten-free, we've learned that the effect of grains long-term, the effect of gluten, um, both on your gut health and your brain health is really, you know, affecting. So to see that you still have so, so, such grain heavy products, um, was really interesting. And so we thought, okay, great. These are the three things we need to tackle to revolutionize the product. Let's go do it. Um, if only it was that easy. And so it took us two years of product development, um, hundreds and thousands of pounds of crappy cereal that we did not like until we got to the product that we truly, really loved. Um, and that's kind of how we got there. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. And so that's, I guess, part of the name three wishes is those three things, sugar, protein, and no grains. Yeah. Um, I think there's another... a narcissistic nod too. So the, the narcissistic nod is a three wishing grads. There are now four, but, um, as of a couple of weeks ago, but the original thing was that it was Margaret Ian Ellis wishing grad. And so my maiden last name is Belfer. And so I hopped all the way to the end of the alphabet. So I'm like, we got to be able to use wishing grad somehow, some way one day. Um, and so it was really serendipitous how we actually came up with the name. So we had a ton of names. We have trademark issues. Um, Ian and I and Alice were sitting outside of our wedding venue, which was the boathouse in Central Park. And just like frustrated, we couldn't think of something. And I looked, I was scrolling through my Instagram thinking, here it goes, inspiration. And when I had Ellis, I hid my entire pregnancy on Instagram. And then when I announced that I had Ellis, the hashtag was three wishes because there were the three of us. And I look at Ian sitting at our wedding venue and I go, three wishes? And he looks at me and goes, there's no way that's not taken. And you'll realize when you go trademark hunting in the grocery aisle, there are everything's taken. Like it's so hard to come up with anything. And so... I, I asked him like three wishes. So he quickly takes out his phone, looks it up in the USPTO trademark search and it's available. And I'm like, no, it can't be. It's too good of a phrase of, or like it can't be available. And so that was it. And from that day on, we're like, okay, it's three wishes. It's done. So it has that double entendre of um, less sugar, more protein, grain and gluten-free. And then the, the three wishing grads that created the product. 
That's awesome. I love that you have that like specific moment, you know, and, and discovering the name. That's pretty awesome. I think naming a company is probably one of the most challenging things to do. Um, it's like a lot of pressure, <laughs> you know, you're like, it's like naming your child, you know, you're stuck with it for a while yeah. and you just hope you like it through all the totally. ups and downs. And it, the hardest part is we do this for clients. Like they could come and we could crank these out till the cows come home, but when it's your own product and it's right in front of you, you're nose blind. And so it was just like, what do we come up with? We're like so disappointed in ourselves because we do this for people. And I'm like, we can't even think of anything for ourselves. And then it, it was divine intervention, I guess. And it just happened. That's awesome. And so what happened from there? You know, tell me about your journey. I, I listened to, um, or I think, I don't know where I read this, but that you spent about two years in product development. So can you kind of walk us through what those two years kind of look like in creating the brand? Yeah. So, I mean, the first step was, Hey, how do we find someone to formulate this? Because we knew that we weren't doing some off the shelf type of product where you can come in and say, all right, give me, you know, chocolate flavor. Um, it was really creating something that hasn't been done before. It was creating a grain based product without grains. Um, and so that was huge. And so we called a ton of our friends. Ian is one of the most brilliant networkers I've ever seen met encountered in my life. And, um, he has a beautiful network that we kind of just started calling a ton of people of, Hey, you know, we're trying to create a cereal type product. Um, do you know any food scientists that could possibly help and just kept going and going. And eventually we got to someone and we kind of gave the parameters of, Hey, these are the ingredients we want to work with. This is what we want it to taste like the experience, the shape, all these different things to help narrow down what we wanted. Um, and then the next part of that step was how do we find now that we found someone that could, you know, create the product or test to create it, how do we find the right facility? And that is a whole Goldilocks step in itself, you know, finding someone that's big enough that has the right allergen uh, safety measures and has the right cleanliness levels and, and just all these things. You didn't want someone that was too small. And so it was trying a ton of different co-packers and making sure they could run the product and really tweaking that. And so we've tried a ton of different product um, until we really were happy with it. And I think what's really interesting is it's not just like um, two performance athlete, you know, husband, wife that came up with a product. It was something that I needed to feed my kid. And for right. that, your brand doesn't matter. Your packaging doesn't matter. Your placement, your price, all these things that matter don't matter. And so for him, um, it was every time we'd get up and he's the worst pickiest eater, really a tough, tough kid when it comes to food to this day. Um, and so for me, I had to be able to put it in the bowl, put it down, walk away and see that he's going to ask me for more. Um, and so there were times where he was like, Oh, this isn't it mom. Um, and so we just kept going and going. And then that last batch, I remember coming home off my flight, coming home, opening that box, putting it in front of him and he loved it and he wanted to eat it again. And I'm like, Ian, we're done. This is it. It's going to market. And so that for us was the true and ultimate test and how we knew we were really ready to go. <laughs> that's awesome. So you found this perfect formula, but you're saying that's what kind of took so long. I think a lot of people that want to start a product, they're like, Oh, I'll just like find a food scientist. They'll create it first batch. It'll be fine. But it sounds like, you know, how many iterations did you have? Do you remember? Oh, I, I wouldn't even be, I don't, I couldn't count my hands. Like so many product iterations. Um, it, it was a long journey. I mean, the thing for me is I also know my experience as a consumer. Um, you go and you buy something, you try it once. If you don't like it, you're not going to be like, ah, oh, I'm going to give that brand another try. Maybe I had a crappy day. Like you have one shot. And so I had to make sure that whatever we were coming out with, 
we left the best first impression. Um, yeah. and that was, that was it for us. That's awesome. And so now that you have this product and you're like, this is the formula, what happened from there? How did you, you know, get going? Yeah. So fortunately it wasn't only two years of product development. It was also two years of strategy, um, and brand building and figuring out, you know, who do we resonate with? Where do they shop? What are the price points they're comfortable with? Um, and, and how do we get there? And so it was kind of, you know, understanding, all right, we're definitely the natural consumer. That's where we start. Let's, let's really go there. When you think about this product, we don't really think of ourselves as, you know, Warby Parker solved a problem where they brought you cheaper glasses to your door. Mm -hmm. Um, we weren't creating a cheaper Cheerio or a cheaper mattress or any of these things. It was, you're creating a food product that's predominantly consumed by children. Um, and so where do, where do those parents shop grocery? Um, you know, nobody there, unless you're a really specific diet product, which we don't find ourselves being, we find ourselves just being generally better for you and, and just like new, clean, healthy version of, um, you want to be in grocery and you want to be at an attainable price point. And so those were kind of all deciding factors. And so, um, before we launched, we started having conversations with retailers and for them, they were so excited to have something that allowed the consumer that left cereal to come back and eat cereal again. That's interesting. So you started with having early conversations with retailers. I feel like a lot of people wait until the product is perfect. And then they're like, Hey, I'm the new guy. Let me like, can you, we want to taste this product. And I think it's really hard to do it that way because you didn't really build any relationship. So can you kind of go through your process and having those early conversations with retailers? Yeah. I mean, by the time we actually went to the retailer, we had the, like the, the pilot product locked in. It wasn't like, Hey, I'm selling you an idea. We didn't have the commercial product ready to hit their shelves. Um, although some retailers, we did wait until it was ready, but for us, it's, it's, it goes back to the exact thing, right? It's all humans. The buyers are, are people and it was creating the relationship. So it was, Hey, you know, we're the wishing grads. This is what we're doing. This is what it's going to taste like. Here's a small sample bag. Please try it. Let me know what you think. And I think what's also really important considering, you know, everyone's human is everyone wants to feel like they touched it in a way. Right. And so having the buyer, okay, you know what? I think it's a little too crunchy or it's a little too, um, you know, maybe do this flavor or that flavor and taking people along the ride makes them feel really invested in your brand. And yep. so for us, yep. it was, it's let's, you know, let's find a few key retailers we really loved mm -hmm. um, and find our way to them and see if they're, they'd be willing to give us a chance and try our product. And, and if so, we kind of just planned it out from there. So very quickly after launch, um, we, we started filling on store shelves. That's awesome. That's really smart. I think, you know, when, when, like I was saying before, if you go in commercial ready and you're like, here's the product and they're like, Oh, I wish it was more crunchy or I wish it was this, I wish it was that. You're like, damn it. I wish I could have taken that feedback. And you know, but by then it's a little late. So that's really cool that you guys did that early. How did you figure out which retailers to approach early and which ones not to approach early? Well, I mean, the ones that we had relationships with or could get a relationship out of in a way, like whether it was like, Oh, you know, we have a friend with a brand that has a good relationship with this retailer or, um, you know, locally here in New York, there's a retailer called Stu Leonard's, which is a small seven store chain, but has a lot of love for it. And Ian went to college with the, um, granddaughter of the original founder. And so, you know, we were like, Hey, do you mind if like connecting us with the buyer? Right. And so we came in, we had a 
conversation. He tried it. And so like, it was kind of slowly starting where, you know, you definitely have relationships. And then kind of once the product launched within market, we were able to quickly then get to the buyers with some, you know, small early data um, and kind of sell the product in that way. Awesome. And so I'm sure in order, you know, for those, when those retailers said, Hey, yeah, I love this. And you started to get some traction, you guys had to start thinking about how to commercially produce the product and which probably involves some fundraising, I assume to, to get it on store shelves. How did you go about tell me, tell us about the fundraising process. I know that you guys just uh, finished raising a seed round. Um, walk us through some of the challenges that you guys faced and how you overcame them. Yeah, so we actually started raising before we had finished, like final finished product. Um, and so, you know, we start with friends and family. You start with people that trust you, that know you, that know you're going to take this and ride it the whole way across the finish line, um, whatever that means to whatever the brand founder is. And so for us, it was find people that love the product, love the idea, love us as founders. Also, your team is super important. So for us, it was, do they love Margaret Ian as a team? And do they have that faith in us? And so we started to have phone call after phone call. And it's funny, because if I look back at my pitch, when it was, you know, the first time we did the first five calls, I probably have had a hundred, couple hundred calls with different um, investors at this point. But your first time, like first couple pitches, you're so like nervous and it's rocky and you like, you don't know what to answer. And it just, it's a practice, not makes perfect, but practice makes you pretty good. So yeah. um, you just learn to, you know, you learn on what to expect that investors are going to ask. You learn to be prepared for those questions. Um, it helps you also fine tune your strategy. You've realized that there is no one way to do this. And some investors may think there's a certain way. And if you don't align with them, that's not the right fit for you. And most importantly, find the investors that are fit on both sides that, you know, you work in their investment investing the thesis and that they work in your team of investors. And so it was kind of just like figuring out it was a dance, kind of you oh, try yeah. each other out, you figure out, you know, if you're the right fit, and then they choose to invest and uh, you choose to have them involved. So what kind of questions did they ask that you feel like you could have never expected? Oh my God. I don't even know now. Like it's, it's been a while. Um, I think it's just like a lot of, you know, how do you choose to execute or if this scenario, if this is X, Y, Z scenario, how do you navigate in it? Um, who does what responsibilities? It, it's funny because as a husband, wife, founder team, we, we never really like outline them because we all, we just like do everything together. Ian and I literally have been sitting next to each other, working together for the last six years. And so, um, it made us really identify, okay, Margaret does this and Ian does this because mm -hmm. people want to know those exact things. Some of my favorite questions were like, well, how do I feel comfortable investing in a husband wife? How do I know you're not going to fight? I'm like, well, we've fought the first three years. Um, so now you've, you've caught us at a good point. We know how to resolve those problems quickly, but no, it's, it's really, um, it's a really interesting experience in, I'm going to think, I mean, if any, if any of those really mysterious questions hit me as we talk, I will definitely stop you and let you know, but, um, there, there are no like identical two questions, but it really is, um, you know, the investor wants to understand the economics, uh, what your growth strategy is, why you choose specific retailers over others. And so you really learn to be prepared for these types of scenarios and it really helps you become a better founder. From an investor's perspective, in your experience, did you find that being a husband and wife team was an advantage or disadvantage? I mean, I never really thought about it because um, it was so like 
natural to me because I've been working with him forever. But it, I think when investors started to mention it, it helped me, like it, it brought it to my attention. And I think for us, it's an advantage. I think in the investor's eyes, um, sometimes it could be worrisome, mm-hmm. but it's really just, you know, also feeling out the couple. You could definitely tell on a phone call their energy or whether they're bickering on a call in front of you or how, you know, how they smoothly transition between each other. And I think it's funny because now I look back at interviews I've done on TV with Ian and the same thing that makes us work as a couple makes us work as, as co-founders. It's, we kind of just like know how to casually pass the ball to each other without really like forcing and looking at each other. It's just a part of Right. thing. We're like one human. It's very weird. That's interesting. And also complementary skills, you know, what would you say are some of the key complementary skill sets that you guys share? Yeah. And I think that's something we also identified, um, in the agency super early on, mm-hmm. I'm a math brain. Ian is like an, an English writing brain. Right. And so I think visually thinks copy, we we're just, mm-hmm. because we're different, but complimentary. It really helps us. And we don't kind of step into each other's lane. So he's really on the sales and marketing side. I'm definitely on the ops product, um, and you know, everything else in between side. So it's, it's really helped us a lot into identifying what those lanes are. It's so interesting because I really feel like, um, there's like this, um, there's a few like different personality tests that will share, like say what kind of uh, role that you'd be best at. My husband actually, and I did this and I was the CEO and he, he was COO. And it's like, and after talking to the guy who has a fund that has this uh, test in which he has all of his founders go through, he's like, he has found that actually couples, married couples are the most complimentary, like they're the most opposite. And that's why they work well in relationship, but also can work pretty damn well in a company as well. So I thought that was like hilarious that, you know, it's kind of also a matchmaking versus like for a co-founder as well as what could potentially work, I guess, in, um, you know, business as well as personal life. I think it's kind of oh, funny. And I mean, what also really helps is I think so many people that, um, are employees, like, you know, they come home and yes, well, they share with their husband and wife, you know, what their day was like and what's happening tomorrow. Sure. But I mean, we will wake each other up at three in the morning. Not that our kids don't already do it, but we will wake (laughs) each other up and be like, Oh my God, I have a great idea. What do you think of this idea? And the other person's not going to be like, stop. I have work tomorrow. It's like, Oh my God, I love it. And so we, it's like, people are like, how do you separate work and and your relationship? There is no separation, but it's the most beautiful thing because we love what we do so much in the cheesiest way possible, but we really truly love what we do. And so we just enjoy doing it all the time. Um, And so I think that really also, you know, contributes to brand success as well. And I think when you have complementary skill sets with your partner, as well as, you know, obviously deep trust, it's kind of like, the perfect mix for who you'd want to start a business with and partner with in general, right? Because you want to find someone you can trust. You want to find someone who's got a complimentary skill set and you're just like, Hey, how about you? You know, <laughs> work. Great. Yeah, no. yeah. We're around each other all the time. We can get stuff done all the time. It seems like pretty good. Uh, fit. Well, you know, some people are like, well, how do you work with your husband all the time? I'm like, didn't you pick that person to marry them? Did right. Like to be around all the time. But what's funny is I think, um, in, in this COVID working from home life, everyone's forced to be with their spouse. And I think it's a, it's a make it or break it for many people. But mm-hmm. for us, I'm like, Oh, it's another Tuesday. Like we're just doing the same thing next to each other, but at home this time. Yeah. So, um, but we really, we really enjoy hanging out. So it's, it's a good time. 
That's good. That's good. That's funny. I know. I think COVID has made or break a lot of relationships. <laughs> yeah. So fundraising went well. I know are you um, gearing up to raise another round soon. So I am of the, if you don't have it, don't spend it mentality. So for me, fundraising was a whole foreign concept to begin with. It's, um, you know, I grew up with my parents, like you don't have, you don't need credit cards. Like if you have it, you spend it. You don't need, you don't need to take, use money you don't have. And so, um, fundraising super foreign, but you know, you obviously learn and realize that it takes money to fund and, and grow businesses. Um, and some people choose to do it, you know, the bootstrappy way, some people choose to, to raise. And so we chose to raise, um, but going forward, I would love to not have to raise. I would love to be able to take everything that we've grown the brand into and just continue reinvesting in the brand. Um, and you know, the goal in my mind is how do we get to profit as soon as humanly possible and just grow a real sound business versus a lot of what we're seeing, which is like fund it, go continue to do another raise over raise here. Um, and that for me is not something I'd love to do. I'd love to just continue focusing on the business because fundraising is, is a whole job in itself, like preparing to raise, telling the story, preparing the deck, doing the calls. It's a whole show. So I'd love to focus on the business and not fundraising again. How do you measure success? When was a moment where you're like, wow, this is actually working? I think um, I'm a really harsh critic on myself. So I, I don't think measuring success is like, at the, you know, once you cross the finish line, when you look back and you're like, ah, that was a good, that was a good run. Um, so I think we have promising signs, you know, seeing different people buy it or reach out to us and tell us the impact it's made on their life or, you know, how much product they buy a week and how they love it and how they can't stop talking about it. And then seeing like family members catching someone on the train, talking about it, snapping a picture, seeing it's in their bag and like all these little fun, little anecdotal things are great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I think I just kind of, I put my head down and, and do what's in front of me. And I don't try to think like, okay, we've made it, but it's also been really fun to win some awards this year on product. Cause I'm a real product snob. And so that I guess is a good sign. What awards did you guys win? Um, so we won a nexty for best clean ingredient. Um, and we have another one coming up that's under embargo. All right. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. So how, how big is your team now? So it's Ian, myself, um, we kind of, we use an employee that works on the agency as well on, uh, the three wishes team that we love. And she is like my sister, the best. And then we have, um, someone that manages our social communication. So it's really a small tight core team. A lot of it is, you know, outsourced to 1099 employees versus W2. So it gives you a little bit more flexible of a party to use these third party people that really specialize in a ton of niche things versus growing a big top heavy team. Yeah. And so what are some of the lessons you've learned about hiring a team? The most important thing you can do, it is no different than, you know, who you pick to marry. It is someone that's going to sit next to you. It's someone that's going to see every aspect of your business. The trust has to be on a whole nother level. Um, and so they're super considered decisions and you have to make sure that, you know, it's someone you can go the full ride with and work with day in, day out that you don't get sick of and, you know, really fits your culture. Cause I think 
the thing you learn and we learned from our first business was culture strategy for breakfast. And so uh, how appropriate it's breakfast, but um, <laughs> for us, it was really making sure culture is the biggest thing. And that oh. it's people that love what you're doing and want to just help you and grow the thing and treat it like it's their own business versus just a job. And how do, how do you go about identifying people like that? You know, you mentioned trust. How do you filter for something like trust? Um, you know, there's no like test for trust. I wish there was, but for us, it's really, I think we're good read of, we have a good read of people. And so it's just really having a ton of like ton of conversations and really understanding where their passion is, what they love to do in their free time, you know, how they feel about our product, how they feel about their vision, what would they do differently? And really just having this, it's dating. It is dating. So it's totally like ask all the questions you would ask someone before you call them your boyfriend. Um, and that's kind of how we look at it too. So, you know, building a company, there's a lot of ups and downs. Tell us about one of your most challenging moments in building the business and how you ever overcame it. Yeah, I mean, there's a challenging moment, what feels like every two minutes of my life. Um, no, but I think there are so many moving parts when you have a business, whether it's, you know, how are my boxes printing? Where's my product? Did it check into the right warehouse? Why isn't it, you know, why isn't it here? Um, why is it out of stock on this shelf? And so I think juggling all of those things and juggling a family um, is really challenging. And it just like, I feel like I have to have my eyes and ears everywhere at the same time to make sure, you know, three wishes is my baby. So whether it's, you know, making sure it's really on those shelves at Whole Foods or you know, that my customers are happy, like making sure I reach out to almost all of my customer service requests personally, um, because I think it's so important that they hear from a founder and you're not just getting some like sorry to hear that you're unhappy. Like I really want to help resolve those issues. And I want to make sure that everyone loves the product as much as we do. And so, and you, it's, yeah. So sorry. you mentioned juggling, um, family and you started your business around the time when your first son was really, really young or was just born. Right. I don't know. How old was he? Yeah. So, I mean, we came up with the idea when he was six months old and then we launched the product. He was two and a half. Wow. And so when you think about that time, you know, I think there's a lot of women that want to start a business around the time that they're having kids simply from like a flexibility perspective. What advice looking back do you have? Would you do it the same way? Like, what would you say to them? Um, you know, your, your business is a real commitment. If it's something you actually want to grow and scale and create into a true business and not a hobby. And so my biggest thing was, I really was able to dive super deep into the business when I was able to relinquish my control and need to sit at home with my son. And so I was able to get someone to babysit him and, you know, trust that they were taking great care of my son, which they were. And I was able to really focus on building the company and, and laying the foundation for that properly. Um, and that was my biggest lesson. So now when I speak to a ton of moms that are like, Oh, you know, I have three kids, so I have to find a way to do, uh, grow this business in between school pickups and XYZ and grocery shopping. And I'm like, that's a hobby. That's not a business. You gotta, you gotta, it's not that you have to pick one or the other. You're always going to be their mom. But if this is something you're truly passionate about, you have to figure out a way to accept the help and, and find a way to allow someone to, to kind of, whether they're helping with the business or helping you with the children, like there's no way to do it all. I wish there was. Right. I think there's probably a lot of people that think, oh, they nap a lot, right? So I'll just be able to yeah. do it when they're sleeping. <laughs> 
but I think they probably don't sleep. I don't have kids yet, but I'm assuming there's a lot of, uh, I highly recommend them. Um, right. So yeah, but you know, now it's interesting because we are on our second kid and I wish I could have someone come help, but with this whole like COVID situation, um, it's a scary thing, especially with new babies. So I have to find a way to kind of, okay, he's napping at this time or he should nap at this time. So let me try to fit in calls, emails. Um, and then, you know, the time he's not napping that I need to do a call Ian, can you take him? And like, it's a lot of, it's a great thing to have a partner to help, mm-hmm. but it's also really tough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence. What's your why? What keeps you going? Do you have like a routine or activity or thought process that helps keep you on track and motivated every day? I mean, knowing that I have to be there for the business to continue growing and for it to survive is like, I don't know what more I need besides knowing, okay, you know, like I got to get up, think about this thing first. Um, and so my kids are obviously a big driving force. I think it's just naturally, I'm super proud of what we've created and I just want to continue getting it out there in the world. And that's always just going to drive me to do what I do. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it takes a ton of persistence. There's a lot of rejection, whether it's you're getting rejected from a buyer, rejected from a consumer, rejected from an investor, rejected from a co-packer. I mean, I can't tell you how much thick skin it takes to really get through and do what you have to do. Were there any moments where, you know, maybe you're rejected by a retailer or an investor and you're just like, oh my gosh, is this even going to work? This is so, feels so impossible sometimes. Oh, I feel like every day, I mean, like the very beginning when it was just an idea, I remember calling, you know, every single co-packer that could possibly even think about creating a product like ours. And I remember calling one and it was like this old guy and he was like, it was very like eight tits, like you sound like a girl with a hobby. And it was just like, no, sir, it's a... I'm a girl with a business. Okay. So it was just like really even things like that, that made me feel like, wow, like, is this still happening in 2000, whatever it was then in 2018, 19, um, that I'm still getting this, this attitude of like, Hey, young sweetie. Um, <laughs> so it's tough. You, you know, you, there's a ton of rejection. There's a ton of doubt. Um, then you have the investors that tell you like, Oh yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen. And then you prove them wrong. And that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just figure it out. I mean, for us, it was, I had points where the co-packer was like, Margaret, you're not going to get to those macros or you're not going to have it taste and experience and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, let's keep pushing. Let's keep testing it. Let's keep running it. And alas, it worked. So there are things every day. Um, but I think maybe real estate might've helped with the rejection thing. Growing up in New York, you have a, you become a real, you become callous really quick to a lot of things. And so I think that's also really helped, but you just got to learn to take the now, let it roll off your shoulders and keep on trucking. What's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? That's a hard, I don't think there's one specific particular thing, honestly. Like I think everything has been such a learning experience. I think I wish every day I'm like, Oh, I wish I knew this six months ago, but like everything is, is a puzzle piece to the journey. And so I wouldn't have gotten here if there wasn't one random thing that I didn't know. Um, and so take it all and just keep going. And what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a, a leader or founder or CEO? That's a great question. I don't ever, I don't think I ever take time to like reflect up 
on that felt like I think I'm like I'm just so busy doing a million other things that mm-hmm. I'm not really thinking about it but maybe another way to think about it is you know the starting a business takes a lot of professional growth and personal growth how have you grown maybe personally that has helped you develop as a leader um I think that like accepting those and being okay with them has helped me really grow personally and and really you know, it's funny. And I think I learned a lot from Ian. He's been a really wonderful teacher for all of these things, just, you know, building and starting his own business, but let it, you know, seeing someone not answer an email and instead of going, well, I emailed and they didn't answer me. I'm done here. It's okay. I'm going to follow up again. I'm going to follow up again. And if I even run into them and I see them and I know they ignored my email, pretend like it never happened. And like, re- that really helps to grow and become a tougher, uh, more resilient person. And I'm really thankful for that. That's awesome. And, you know, before we wrap up here, just two more questions. One, um, what other advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or, you know, business leaders tuning in? You've provided a lot of really cool insights, but do you have any other final advice? If, if you really think you've found a solution to a real existing problem, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Not an investor, not your parents, not the neighbors, and just really go and create that business for yourself. And there's nothing more fulfilling than um, reaping what you sow. And it's wonderful to build things for other people and businesses, but building your own and molding your own destiny is really a beautiful, liberating thing. And as far as what's next for Three Wishes cereal, what can we expect? We're launching another flavor shortly, um, which is exciting. And we are always working on some fun product innovation in the background as well. And so it just continue becoming a trusted brand that people really have a lot of heart for um, and, and know that, okay, they're, they have a couple of promises that they'll always deliver on. It's always going to be clean quality ingredients always great macros are always going to be super transparent and they're just going to have a good time doing it. And they're going to go for foods that people know and love. Um, and so just becoming that trusted household name is, is that's it. That's the whole thing. And you have three flavors out right now, I think, right? We have four. Um, so we have a cinnamon, a honey and unsweetened and a cocoa. Mm. And our fifth launches shortly as well. And that is one of my favorites. And you're not allowed to say what it is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's really good. When is it coming uh, out? By the time this TBD, we're trying to figure that out now. Um, oh, okay, it's coming out shortly, but um, you'll see it in market. And you'll know it's the newest, the latest, and the greatest. But it's uh, it's really good. So I'm excited about it. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to uh, hear more about it. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. It was awesome talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.